the small molecules that float in our body. And we know, of course, about cholesterol and sugar, but there are many other things. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. I am honored to have with us Dr. W.H. Wilson-Tang to share just a portion of the knowledge that he has with us. Dr. Tang is a leading researcher and cardiologist practicing at the Cleveland Clinic and the Lerner Research Institute. He studied neural and molecular sciences prior to attending medical school at Harvard and then did residency training at Stanford and a cardiology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic with further fellowship there into heart failure and cardiac transplantation. His research work focuses on finding and understanding the underlying mechanisms that lead to heart disease. And for his significant work, he was awarded the Distinguished Scientist Award from the American College of Cardiology in 2022. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the real details, this is a very specialized area of research, or at least it seems that way to me, being on the outside. How did you get from just thinking about going to medical school to finding yourself here doing cardiac transplantation medicine and researching poop? <laughs> well, if you say it that way, it's kind of interesting, but truly it was just like most things is serendipity. I've always longed to be a good doctor and be a good cardiologist, and I was fortunate enough to come here to the Cleveland Clinic where I learned a lot, and I stayed here as staff and specialized in heart failure transplant. That's my day job. But as we continue to see our patients, uh, more questions than answers, I think most doctors would recognize that. And uh, it's really the patients that got us to think about or rechallenge what we are doing and what are the things that get them sick and continue to let the disease progress. And if you think about it, heart failure transplant is really the, the common final pathway to progressive heart diseases, whatever you've got coronary disease or valve disease or arrhythmia or the heart just get weak, got hit by a virus or whatnot. And what we have continued to really struggle with is how the different organs interact with each other in terms of promoting disease. So I had the fortunate to work with many very brilliant minds both in terms of people working with me and people that we trained and have explored various different ways. I was uh, jokingly called a closet nephrologist before. I wanted, I've always liked the physiology of kidney 
So it's most trainees. And so, and one of my favorite areas is also endocrine. So what would combine cardiology, endocrine, and nephrology, we are failure. And so what we have is a lot of people who are continually congested, patients with progressive cardiorenal problems. And one of the well-known you know, facts of renal dysfunction is a progressive accumulation of uremic toxins. To translate from science to English, heart failure is linked to not just the heart and vessels, but hormones and the kidney. Cardio means heart, renal means kidney, nephro also means kidney, Uremic toxins are things that will do harm if not eliminated by the kidneys. Also, you're about to hear the term metabolite, and that's just a tiny molecule made in the process of metabolism. And that area actually got us interested early on in look at metabolites that are accumulating in the body that causes problems that lead to cardiovascular disease. After all, the majority of patients with kidney problems ended up having cardiovascular disease, whether it's coronary disease, cardiac dysfunction or even stiffness or even arrhythmias. And that's actually one of the major causes of their problems. And so we go into more and more details on the, the metabolites, meaning the small molecules that float in our body. And we know, of course, about cholesterol and, and sugar, but there are many other things. And many of the things are waste products that the kidneys excrete. And so if they accumulate, we will have a lot harder time having functional organs. It was pretty much a serendipity when we were trying to look for novel metabolites that we came across a few metabolites that were consistently shown to lead to further risk of death and stroke. When we look closer at what they are, some of them were really linked to each other. And in fact, one of them was a byproduct of a bacteria. This is how we got into looking into the gut, because then we kind of follow the question and follow the source. And we found out that, in fact, there's this huge pathway that we've known for some time. In fact, this is uh, this pathway we have known in the sewer literature, actually. The what literature? You know, and it. The sewer, sewer, like you know, in the in the yeah, in the public health sewer okay. literature. If you think about it, it is what bacteria consumes and metabolize. In fact, the trimethylamine, which is a gas, is coming from these nutrients that the bacteria kind of metabolizes, like they use it as fuel and they kind of excrete it, and then the body actually absorbs it to eliminate, and the liver actually conjugated to form TMAO. The trimethylamine is TMA, is a gas. In fact, it smells like rotten fish. And so this disgusting smell coming out of the sewers inspired further research because you guys were looking for things, discovered that this molecule existed and where it came from. You followed it back into the intestines and then started asking the questions, okay, why is it even here? And how did it come to be? Exactly. And of course, there's this whole parallel discovery process over the last few decades with more and more emphasis that the bacteria, the three trillion bacteria in the gut actually plays a very important role. In fact, they lived inside us for a very important reason. It helped us to digest and process a lot of our nutrients and to make a lot of very important things that is essential for life. There are many people that have problems with actually keeping the, the healthy gut microbiome has a lot of health problems for that reason. Okay. And just to, to go back to the fundamentals, when you are talking about the microbiome of the gut, what exactly does that mean? And you said three trillion. 
Yeah. So there's a lot in there that we don't know. It's, it's like we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. And every day we still have a lot to discover. Right now, the majority of our knowledge really comes from bacteria that lives inside our body. And we have known for a long time, we know in very sick patients, they have changes in their, their microbial composition. There are viruses that live in there. There are funguses that live in there. There's a lot of bacteriophages, which is kind of, you know, interface. So there's a lot of organisms that live inside, very much like in the deep sea with coral reefs. It's an entire ecosystem that lives inside every one of us. That is unique. When we talk about precision medicine, ironically, everybody's microbial composition is far more different than our genes. The majority of our genes are actually very similar, about 97% or something, or even more. But the actual microbial composition difference could be as, more, as, as many as like 50 to 70% change. So what you and I could actually fingerprint, our unique signature of what's living inside us. Wow. So... Speaking of genes, are there influences of genetics on our microbiome? I think there has been a lot of work done on how our own immune system, particularly in the gut, can modulate who lives inside there. So there is some link, but I don't think, for example, we know of genetic changes as a result of the presence. Of course, there's obviously an evolutionary advantage of some genes and some microbes that coexist in certain individuals in certain environments. And we also know that the environment does affect what lives inside us and also the, the people who, who evolve with certain genetic advantages. So there has been studies, for example, in, I think there has been a study some time ago looking at how generations of Japanese inhabitants actually develop the microbes that would actually process seaweed, for example. You know, so there's obviously a huge environmental influence, but it is also maybe a reason why migration studies show that there's shift in disease vulnerability as populations move from one area to another. And there are some changes in the environment. And environment meaning what not only what we breathe and what is we expose, but the biggest environmental exposure is what we put in our mouth. We're talking about, you know, grams, if not kilograms, of amount of exposure. And this is the very essence of what these microbes do. They are getting exposed. And just like in a Petri dish, they are dependent on the nutrients that feed them. Mm -hmm. And so there is a big link and for the interest of your audience, there's a big link between what we call lifestyle modifications or healthy lifestyle that is linked. And this is not something that is only a, a day or two, although small changes even acutely can, can make big differences. But it's really also a lifelong exposure. Okay. So even small changes in how people are living accumulate over the long term. How long does it take for those changes to even make an impact? whatever those changes are? I think it depends on what changes and also what kind of endpoint you're looking at. We actually have published a few studies working with Dr. Ron Krause at, in the West Coast in Oakland at UCSF. And he actually has a longstanding interest in, in cholesterol. And he has many volunteers that he look at high or low fat diet or different types of protein, meaning white meat, no meat or red meat. 
and he had these kind of crossover studies. And we leveraged that to actually measure some of these metabolites. And what we did find in a paper published in 2019 in the European Heart Journal that showed that the TMAO increase trimethylamine and oxide. This is the compound that Dr. Hazen and colleagues have discovered back in 2011 to link with cardiovascular disease, which I've actually worked closely with them. What we have found is this metabolite that we talked about seemed to be particularly vulnerable if patients or if participants are fed with red meat rather than white meat or no meat. And that makes a, a very interesting observation because not everybody would have this rise. Some people actually don't have much and other people have a lot. And this may actually un- that undermine is really not necessarily what is good or bad food but whether you are vulnerable or not, what lives inside you. People eating the same red meat are going to be producing that TMAO, that damaging molecule. Yeah. Some people eating that Mm -hmm. same red meat, the same quantities, are not Mm -hmm. and will not suffer the consequences. Well, we we think that's the case. We still are doing experiment to directly link it. Just imagine, we knew about LDL cholesterol in the 1970s. We know associations with bad outcomes. It took us about 20 years with stand therapy to actually show in the 4 study to show that by lowering it directly, we actually reduce the risk. So it takes a lot longer for us to really make that mm-hmm. link. We are getting there. There's been a lot of association studies suggest that if you are in the lower range, and definitely you see it in the animal studies, if you actually limit the production of it, you see less progression of heart and kidney, you know, progression of disease. So there is at least in vivo data, meaning in living, you know, animals, that there is this association. But human studies are still ongoing. The epidemiologic studies show that if you have progressively higher levels, you certainly have long-term consequence. And that's what our collaboration with some epidemiology groups, particularly with Dari Mosavarian's group in terms of the cardiovascular health study, we see the long-term consequences of cardiorenal problems in otherwise healthy elderly patients, apparently healthy elderly patients that have 10, 15 years of follow-up. So how does TMAO or any of these metabolites, how do they get from stuff we eat into our gut and then actually get into the bloodstream And how do these organs even know that it's out there? Yeah, it is a well-known molecule in living organisms. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this soon, but it actually is quite common in deep-sea fish. It's actually the deep-sea fish's antifreeze. It actually makes them, their muscles not frozen up if it's too cold. I guess it's important. I mean, they don't want to swim around and look like the ones in the freezer. So you always wonder why, because they actually lower the freezing point of the muscle, you know, and that's actually important for them. And as they actually swim up to... The warmer waters, actually, the, the, the amount actually is less of the TMAO. Now, TMA is a gas, and it's actually a byproduct, a nitrogenous byproduct of common nutrients like carnitine and choline. Phosphatidylcholine is, is, the, is the type of fat that actually, you know, is quite common in, in, in many forms of food, particularly with kind of rich and fatty foods, you know, liver and all that. It was actually a very big concern early on about egg yolk. Egg yolk has a good amount. In fact, when pregnant women needs a lot more choline for the baby's neurodevelopment, it is advised to actually eat more choline. OK, 
Okay, so this is actually important. These are important nutrients. Except that, of course, if you actually have bacteria, particularly in carnitine, which is red meat, if you think about it, that uses this as as their fuel source, as their food, then the enzymes will kind of break down these nutrients and and take the trimethyl group out and make it as a gas. And so this is really a byproduct, nitrogen byproduct of that digestion process of the microbes. So if you actually eliminate those microbes, you don't get that in the gut at all. Now, because it's a gas, it actually gets diffused into the body. The body actually just absorbs it. And so, yeah, directly. And so in the portal vein, it goes to the liver and the liver actually conjugated to form the oxidation calls the TMAO. So instead of TMA, trimethylamine, it becomes trimethylamine oxide. So our intestines breathe it in, and, and then it loads up. Yeah, the they liver. breathe it in, and then exactly, <laughs> and <the liver>. exactly. <laughs> That's one way to do that. Yes, to say that, and then basically it becomes a small molecule, and in the molecular weight, it's about seventy-six, and basically it just floats in the bloodstream and get excreted in the kidneys. It's actually getting actively excreted in the kidney, not not even passively, you know, diffusely filtered. It's actually actively being pumped out. The kidney is trying to get rid of this. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the earlier forms of living organism may actually, in fact, even the fish may actually use that as an osmolite as well to balance the blood concentration in terms of filtration. Okay. You know, so some earlier forms that humans don't actually do that. The amount is much lower. Okay. So it is, if you think about it, a, a mechanism to excrete. But I think what is important to understand is we are still in the process of trying to understand which part of the mechanism is causing the disease. So there has actually been three lines of investigation. One line is actually related to how TMAO and the pathway of producing TMAO may be linked to cholesterol and bile acid synthesis. So we all know about cholesterol being a culprit. So maybe how the body and particularly gut is processing the liver, the gut, and all that is processing and making or secreting bile acids and cholesterol has some bearing with the presence of high versus low TMAO levels. And I want to actually caution you that it may or may not be the TMAO itself, but maybe TMA as well. You know, maybe it is the gas itself that is dissolved into or absorbed into the bloodstream that's causing some of these processes we don't know but it definitely it is a marker for sure that has lead to badness so consistently all those people with elevated levels do have a worse outcome now the second line of investigation has been linked to the increased in platelets clotting potential so it may not actually affect you know the clotting when the when patients are kind of doing well, but then if they actually have a clot. So for example, if you have a heart attack, it may actually be, the platelets may be literally maybe more angry. They actually are more agitated. And there's a mechanism that we actually identify. The calcium cycling in the platelets are actually much more aggressive. And so when we actually see an injury, so we have even injury models that we actually see when the clot is formed it becomes an occlusion a lot more rigorously. And so that is actually something quite intriguing because that may actually explain why there are more stroke and more heart attacks. Right, in that acute phase yeah. that yeah, suddenly what would have been... It kind of cascade. Yeah, yeah cascaded. Yeah. More rapidly. Yeah. So that's the, that, that's the second part. The third 
area of lining of potential reason why things are getting worse is the potential that the pathway may induce the cells to get more scarring. It activates the fibrotic pathway and organs. So we see it in the heart muscle itself and we see it in the kidney itself. Both organs, the increase in scarring certainly is a sign, a process of accelerated damage. And so that is actually, so there are some mechanisms that people have identified and it's certainly associating this pathway and its components with these observations. So to recap, the three ways that may be doing damage Mm -hmm. from the TMA or TMAO is a shared pathway with cholesterol and bile Mm -hmm. acids. So maybe there's Mm -hmm. just a mutual effect on each other, and that's Mm -hmm. what's causing it. And TMAO is just more of a marker than a direct player. Well, there is a direct influence on the processing. So at least in animals, that's the only way we could do it in animals, because what happened is they have to go into the getting the tissue of the gut and the liver to actually understand the expression of different enzymes. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there is, a, it's, if you think about it, it's like turning up and down a real stat. It kind of increase the changes that is posed by it. So it, it, it's synergist in terms of making the, the problems related to cholesterol and bile acids a, a lot, you know, more vulnerable to the organs. Gotcha. And then the other couple ways are platelets clumping together much more easily when they're mm-hmm. called in to do with their clotting job. Mm-hmm. And the other ways mm-hmm. are tissues becoming more scarred and thus not able to function as well. Does it do anything good? Is this is TMA necessary for our life? Does it helping us in any way? When we actually look at, I guess if you're a deep sea fish, it certainly does a lot of good. Just like a lot of things, I'm sure that there are something that may, the TMA may be important. There, in the clinical laboratories, people have been using TMAO as a stabilizer agent, you know, so the proteins actually don't misfold or having problems. So I mentioned before, it's an osmolite. So certainly some organisms just use it. Certainly what it primarily serves for the microbes in my, in my kind of naive understanding is it is a excretional product. I mean, it is a byproduct of a metabolism. So it may or may not be kind of like there are many things that we we eliminate that is good for has to have a mechanism to eliminate nitrogenous waste. Nitrogenous waste, meaning the waste products after protein metabolism. So it is a nitrogenous waste in many ways. I think it helps the body not to accumulate all the excessive waste. And so this is a mechanism to have a stable product to be excreted. So I do think that it certainly serves its purpose, except that just like anything else, if you actually have too much of a bad thing, it may not be good. So there are people that don't produce TMA. If it's completely reliant on what we eat, then the people that don't get any kind of carnitine Mm -hmm. sources and just rely on their body to make their own, they don't make any TMA. So is that detrimental to them? Again, you know, we, we have not seen that Particularly, there are even genetic diseases where there are no enzyme to actually, you know, conjugate to TMAO. And, and unfortunately, it's a, it's a social challenge, if you imagine, because they certainly smell like the TMA. It's a rare disease. Uh, we, we, it's so small numbers that we can't tell what are the physiologic changes. But yes, you're correct. Vegans and vegetarians, they could make their own carnitine. So they actually do not consume 
a lot of carnitine. And in fact, when we measure their TMA levels, they're actually much, much lower. Okay. So they're, and, they're not and, zero. They're just much lower. No, they're much lower because okay. again, you know, we do have breakdown choline in our body. We, we cycle our proteins all the time. Our bile actually dumps it down to the gut. And so there's always some production. There's a whole endogenous circulation pathway. So we do have levels, but they are much, much, much lower. Okay. And I'm talking about, you know, normal people in terms of TMAO below five or six is really kind of the risk is similar to, but once you go up to six or above, certainly the risk is higher. And people who are nearing dialysis, they could go up to 20 and even up to 100. So there's a wide range. And so there is a component of production. And you're talking about the consumption of the substrate and the bacteria that lives inside us, but also the clearance, which in the case of pre-dialysis or dialysis, people really have very high levels because they just can't clear it. Yeah. How much risk is there? You, you touched on risk just a bit, but can you put it in context? If somebody has a TMAO level of 10, 7, 22? Yeah, it depends on the population. It depends on whether they have pre-existing condition and how it competes with a different risk. Although it certainly had, if it is high to that level, there has like a and don't quote me exactly because it's different in different populations, like definitely 40-50% increase on top of the existing risk factors like age, sex, like diabetes, cholesterol. So there are multivariate analysis that people have done. It depends on whether they're apparently healthy or whether they're already coming into the cath lab with the coronary disease already. So, I mean, it's something that obviously we are still learning a lot. We're also trying to figure out what can reduce that, what can actually modulate that. So you, you touch on how modulating the diet sometimes can help. We've actually known that many dietary interventions that potentially can help has some early data to suggest that it is potentially helpful. Lessen the amount that we eat in itself. The intermittent fasting in general does lower the TMAO. Lowering the red meat consumption. I told you about the crossover study. The same person who actually consumed different types of protein have different consequences. If you are the unlucky <laughs> subset of people that has the enzymes in the bacteria that makes them. And unfortunately, there are also a lot of hidden compounds in processed food. So for example, we know a lot of energy drinks and a lot of food substances have added carnitine as a mm. supplement. They may not be listed in the product label, oh. but we certainly know, for example, some energy drinks and even store-bought coffee drinks or whatever does have some carnitine in it and bodybuilding kind of compounds. We just don't know the consequences of all these. I mean, there's not been consistently studied, so we have to be very cautious about what we put in our mouths, particularly if it is not naturally occurring. Yeah. I'll give you a very recent example. We actually did a randomized controlled trial on the role of choline, where it's in the form of naturally occurring, which is eggs. Because mm -hmm. when this when this story first came out, everybody's kind of worried. And we also worry about whether eggs is a source of this versus actually pills who have the same amount of choline. Hmm. 
And we actually measured them in the machine to make sure that they are. So four hard-boiled eggs versus, you know, kind of the amount that we use traditionally for supplements. So coding by sulfate, you can actually get on the store in the supermarket. And we have volunteers that actually take both of either one of them. I mean, it's randomized for a month. Okay. And we even have combinations of an egg only, egg with only the egg white with the pill. <laughs> only the pill or mm-hmm. both. Okay. Okay. And what we found at the end of one month is, and these are all patients with normal kidneys. So, you know, how does it work in people with renal dysfunction? We don't know. But the people who are only taking the eggs with the same amount of choline actually did not have significant increase in the TMAO. But the ones who are taking the supplement, the choline supplement, actually we see it go up. Just to rephrase, to say that again, the ones taking just Take choline had the TMA the go synthetic, up. Yeah, but the synthetic, yeah. The ones the synthetic, yeah. With the synthetic and eating the eggs, they were stable. Whether or not whether you're eating the eggs. Oh, okay. So you're only taking the pill or taking the pill with the eggs. So that actually means that what we make, we think, and we labeled as the substance it may actually act differently when it interacts with our bacteria. Now, it's possible the choline get absorbed or get processed early on in the earlier in the gut, so it actually exposes a little less. That's a possibility. It may be the form in which the choline is being is present in the food, mm-hmm. either a free form or a bound form or some. So, naturally occurring food in many ways is definitely more reliable, should I say? because we just don't even know how our body responds to it. So that's why I, I think the advent of technology does help us a little bit more to understand that not everything is created equal. And so I think we have, it's not just these data, but just data in general has taught us a few things, which is kind of what we learn throughout you know, culture is that anything that is fresh and naturally occurring mm-hmm. is definitely uh, at least has been having a natural history experiment for a long time. Yeah. And we certainly would, would understand in terms of the amount, which is in moderation, balance, as well as the fact that uh, if it is diverse and, and rich enough, it actually provides all the nutrients we need. It does also question, just like many studies now, question the exact role of a specific supplement we think is actually helpful, whether they actually do unknown effects on the body based on the things that we just don't know about. Right. And this pathway actually opens our eyes in a little bit on that. We don't know whether it's good or bad, but we certainly was a little surprised if we thought that two is the same thing. Why would they have different response in the body? And suddenly we're wondering, are things the things that we think they are? And are they going exactly. to do the things that we think they should do? Exactly. Based off what they are. And we had we, and we had that experience with many things. We have it with substitute sugar, trans fat, and times and environment change too. You know, it's very different when the world is having a lot more nutritionally deprived populations. And, and certainly things are different but on the other hand, we, we still have a lot to learn. And I think the technological advances do allow us to, to gain some insights. However, I think there's a lot of strong feelings about lifestyle and diet 
Yeah. But I think in general, most people do agree that keeping a healthy lifestyle in terms of diet and exercise is an essential part of both wellness and also when you have medical problems. That there is a large component that can overcome a lot of inherited vulnerabilities, but also to maintain your well-being, some, many things that cannot be put in a pill. That seems like a potent place to pause. To recap, it seems that elevated TMAO levels over five can bestow an extra 50% risk for major heart events. This primarily comes from the combination of certain gut bacteria and animal-derived foods that contain things like choline and L-carnitine. Interestingly, not everyone who is eating meat is gonna be vulnerable to having elevated TMAO levels. Importantly, it seems people that do not ingest any animal products have consistently low values of TMAO. Also, it seems that levels get significantly worse when choline is coming from lab-made supplements. To me, this all fits with that famous quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Unless you already have heart disease, because then I would change that saying to eat food, not too much, only plants. Stay tuned for the next part of this discussion, where we talk much more about how what happens in the gut never stays in the gut, including things like obesity. Until then, if these conversations with experts are useful to you, please get just one more person to subscribe. Caring means sharing. Remember, the way you live can save your life.